Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine. Our guest is Dr. Anjali Moeller, head of Pharma International Informatics at Roche. Anjali and our host Raphael discuss data science in the big pharma leagues, geek out on data standards, and deep dive on patient data rights and barriers to care. Let's get right to it. It's my pleasure to welcome today uh, Dr. Anjali Moeller. Uh, fair disclosure, Anjali and I have known each other for a while. Uh, we are both co-founders and, and executive committee members on the Alliance for AI for Healthcare board, and um, it's really a great privilege. Anjali is probably the biggest muckety-muck in the biotech industry of, of anyone I personally consider a friend. So Anjali, thank you for joining us today. Maybe you can just introduce yourself and, and your current role. Yeah, thank you so much, Raphael, for that very colorful introduction. Um, so uh, myself, I have had a, a long career in research already. So I was at Cancer Research UK for four years and worked in clinical trials, moved over to the Max Delbruck Center in Berlin and worked on neurodegenerative research there. I then decided I wanted to switch uh, fields and really focus much more on deep learning, computer vision, um, so I invested some time on, on really upskilling in that area and then moved to Thomson Reuters as a data scientist and, and from there into pharma in a lot of different roles in informatic teams. Uh, right now I'm at Roche and I head up the uh, Roche Pharma International Informatics team, which always uh, takes a bit of explaining. So our acronym is PICS. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see I've started to try and use that hashtag um, and the PICS team covers all of the informatics activities in every single one of the countries where Roche Pharma has a presence, apart from the US. And in the US, that's handled by Genentech. So it's, it's incredibly diverse. I had a, a call this week uh, with my teammate in Iran, uh, and we were talking about, you know, what's going on the ground there as well and, and where we're not able to roll out U.S. software um, uh, at the moment. We have our, our teams, I mean, literally everywhere working on everything from how do we engage with our customers? How do we ensure that they have meaningful content? How do we collect real world data in each of our countries? How do we ensure that we use that then meaningfully? And also, how do we ensure that everyone has a laptop and a headset and a good internet connection? So we really cover the broad spectrum there. That's amazing. It's everything from IT support to pure sort of customer facing or, or even patient facing informatics. So we can we could fill hours talking about that. And I do want to come back to your role today. But let's let's start with your journey a little bit. How would you describe your skill set? I mean, you're you're a businesswoman, essentially, a you know, division leader, but it sounds like you were a biologist first and then a, then a data scientist. What is your niche? I hate being put in a box. So honestly, I, I, uh, I mean, I'm tremendously curious. And, and Raphael, you know that I, I look after our finances at the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare and also 
some of my time at Bayer was spent working really closely with our VC team, so with our venture capital team. I would say that my niche and the thing that I'm passionate about is patient care. And I just think there's so many different roles and disciplines that have a role to play in great patient care and, uh, and in developing new healthcare products. And so you mentioned that you kind of started your, your CV description at Cancer Research UK. Do you have a specialty still in, in oncology or what would you consider kind of your disease purview? I started off, uh, as you know, in oncology and then really, as you do uh, when, you're, when you're working on, on your PhD and in the beginning of your research career, I focused in on a single DNA repair pathway and a series of single chain um, antibodies to really try and interfere with that pathway or promote certain aspects of that pathway. Then into to really uh, protein aggregation and neurodegeneration. Um, and then memory formation with MUNK18 and SNAP25, if those proteins mean anything to you. And now, you know, I work in, in rare disease uh, as part of RareX. So I would say that, yeah, I, I used to, and when I was in clinical trials, it was definitely oncology. So there was, there's mm -hmm. a home in oncology for me. When I moved into neuroscience, I was really shocked at how little we knew about neuroscience, you know, from going to, uh, is there another binding site on P53 that nobody knows about mm -hmm. to a field where you're just saying, I, I have no idea how memories are formed. Um, I have a couple of theories, but we don't really know. Right. It, was, um, it was a big shift. And uh, so again, no, no specific discipline in TAs. I think what I've appreciated over time and now particularly working in the rare disease space and the ultra rare space in rare X is just how different the needs are and how misleading sometimes trying to uh, generalize the expectations and generalize the approach that you would take to different disease areas can be. I uh, see that right now with our real world data collection in rare disease patients and when we see colleagues trying to take the same approach that they might have taken in uh, an oncology field where mm -hmm. a large number of patients were affected, just how misleading that can be. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I do see that there's a lot of benefit from taking the time to really get to know the disease area you're working in. So now you've kind of got this top-down um, vantage and it's, it's informatics focused. So in principle, this is gonna to have to do with data science and, and how we use data to help patients. What do you think are some of the, the biggest opportunities to use data, especially in a, a place like rare disease where they're just, you're not gonna have quote unquote big data like you might in cancer. And you know, there's a lot of basic research that's needed before we maybe will have drugs for, you know, that are ready for, for the clinic. So where do you think are the biggest leverage points for what you do? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think maybe just if I split that out, um, if I look first at where can we have the biggest impact on healthcare, I still think a lot of that is in just helping healthcare systems around the world become more efficient and lower their costs. I really, you know, I see the healthcare system here in Germany and I see the healthcare systems in the UK. Um, and I, I really wish that we could put the best informatics and the best talent there to help them create a more efficient data-driven healthcare system. And we see moves in that direction, but we know it's really challenging and a huge transformation needed there. Um, I think 
specifically though on the rare disease space. So you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, in, in the oncology space, we're really then often saying, okay, what can we find in electronic medical records? That's a big topic now. And how can we connect and, and start to understand what's in electronic medical records? But what, and I started that way in Rare X. You can, Nicole Boyce, who's our CEO, can certainly tell you that I also had to go on my own education journey when I joined the team. Um, and what we found uh, through our work was yes, uh, there are times when the electronic medical record integration did make a difference. But really, a lot of the scientific questions we were trying to address, the data was not there that would allow us to answer um, what are common phenotypes in, in patients who have an ultra rare disease where perhaps only nine patients in the whole of a country have that particular genetic mutation. And so instead we were doing uh, and getting much richer data, but smaller data with patient reported outcomes that were collected mm -hmm. over time. And they were much more meaningful for trying to find uh, interventional therapies that would help mm -hmm. to reduce the phenotypes of, and usually it's children. So the children who, who were suffering from the different rare diseases we were investigating. Tell us more about patient reported outcomes as a data modality. I, I get the sense, but I'm, I'm not an expert at this, that um, historically there's distrust in the medical community about what patients say. You know, they're not considered reliable witnesses, but I feel like that's not actually true. And in fact, we're seeing a lot of utility in what they say. Um, RETX is running a, a project with Genentech at the moment. So a diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion project. And they were really looking at the effect of the way you ask a question Mm -hmm. and how that affects the data you collect. Because, so I understand the skepticism. There are um, certain communities where a particular diagnosis is taboo and nobody may want to admit to having a particular symptom or diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then that can affect the data that you're able to collect. So in, in that project, one of the aspects that's being looked at is how do you ask the question and is the community that you're working with willing to answer the question in the way you've posed it. Mm -hmm. um, I think with patient reported outcomes in RareX, we complement them. So I think they are like all data sets, they have some inherent bias. They can be incredibly rich as well. And you can also, um, the, the platforms that we use to collect our patient reported outcomes, they can be highly customized to collect the data we need for the scientific questions we're trying to address. Uh, so they mm -hmm. can be incredibly useful in that way. And you can gain a really rich understanding of all of the, the sleep changes, the, the emotional changes, the dietary changes, and how they're linked to the different medications people are on, mm -hmm. uh, which we didn't see in the electronic medical records. But we do combine them with whole genome sequencing, which is supported by the Broad Institute with integrations with electronic medical records when that is possible for that particular community. Mm -hmm. And we're also in partnership now with certain groups who are supporting us to set up a, a wearable data gathering. So also where that's possible and we have the right connectivity to provide mm -hmm. patients with those type of devices, then you're really able to say, does your gait or does your flexibility or looking at movement as a, a surrogate for how much pain you're suffering, does that really mm -hmm. change over time? 
So yes, you're right. It's every data set has its limitations, and I won't deny that. Is the approach to the patient-reported data to standardize the way they report? In other words, is everything on like a numerical scale or multiple choice? Or does there become kind of a data translation challenge, right? Like a structuring challenge afterwards where you have to take free text and figure out what the hell it means? Yeah, no. So we are so lucky that we have Vanessa Vogelfarley, who heads our data standards committee, And they have put in a huge amount of effort focusing right now on the neurological rare disease space to make Mm -hmm. sure that we have a standard that we're working towards and that we, with all of our partners, are working towards that standard so that we Mm -hmm. don't have this hurdle of of trying to then extract information from unstructured text. Mm -hmm. Data standards is is kind of fascinating because... This is one of those challenges and obviously an interoperability. So it sounds like your group has an effort. How do you think about aligning those? So maybe within Roche, Roche probably has its own sets of data standards and maybe more than one set, depending on where. And this is obviously something within the Alliance for AI and Healthcare. Some of our colleagues are also trying to tackle on more of like an industry-wide level of you know leading initiatives where can we just all agree on data standards? How disparate is it? And and Is it going to be a bottom-up or a top-down or a meet-in-the-middle kind of solution? First of all, I had to laugh when you said data standards are really interesting because like I've spent a lot of time looking on data standards. You and I think they're really interesting. (laughs) I don't know if the whole world finds them really interesting. Um, So if you're listening to this, trust us, data standards are really interesting. You're going to want to get your popcorn for this bit. Exactly. Uh, I, when I when I was introducing myself to my new team at Roche, I found out that one of my team worked on the CDISC data standards, which I used to work on as well. And I, we were so mm-hmm. happy to have found each other. Like, <laughs> data standard nerds. But um, I think I think you know there's some principles that apply for every type of standard. Don't invent your own. In so mm-hmm. many, er- I hear people complain that they're not good standards for this, that, or the other. And mm-hmm. even in, in one of our data standards committees at the AEIH, there was a point where I pulled out Google and I just started to be like, look at all of these standards that already exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think it's very much about interoperability with existing standards. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as I said, my, my background was in molecular biology and at Cancer Research UK. And at that time, I worked uh, uh, closely with the European Institute of Bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. The fantastic set of standards and the uh, interoperability that they maintain between those standards. Mm-hmm. And I now, as as I've moved out of the lab and and gone into the clinic, and and as I said, started to work with CDISC and now into electronic medical records, where of course, internationally, <laughs> I think there's one point where I accept we're not going to have an international electronic medical record where every single one of the countries in which I operate in my role at Roche will accept. But I also think that that we certainly shouldn't invent our own and we should rather look at how we can expand and build upon and contribute to existing publicly available standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I see an opportunity and almost certainly some clever startups are working on this for like a babblefish, right? Like in the universal API for these things. I, I also see, you know, we're, we're getting smarter at making sense out of messy data, out of unstandardized data. And mm-hmm. I think that's it's another way to go. And certainly part of our um, data science and machine learning team at Roche uh, are working mm-hmm. on that, that approach instead. 
Um, I'm going to try to get us a little bit um, back on, on some of the topics that I had flagged earlier I want to talk about. So your work at Rush, you described as being kind of the whole world minus U.S. And again, very broad from literally, you know, IT stuff to proper research and, and informatics. How do you, what is the mandate though of the group? I mean, are, are you really, are you supporting therapeutic areas of drug discovery or is it more leaning towards kind of clinical inpatients or is it truly kind of whatever yeah. people need on computers? No, fantastic question. Fantastic question. Um, our, our mandate specifically is uh, to really work with the, the customer facing organizations. Okay. So we're really at the end of the, the pharma value chain. Uh, and we work there, for instance, we have a role called a patient journey partner, and their role mm -hmm. is to partner and solve issues that are really getting in the way of the maximum number of patients being treated. So they work together with NGOs, with healthcare professionals, can also mm -hmm. be with policymakers in a particular country to really look at how can we remove hurdles that are, are preventing patients from being treated. And sometimes uh, these what is the actual market access or the actual operational hurdle in between mm -hmm. a patient actually being able to use the drug uh, or the medication that we've produced? It is very complex and very localized. Um, but it, as well as that, sometimes what is actually getting in the way of a patient being treated is that the patient journey partner out in the field needs to have access to all of the information about a particular disease area from our mm -hmm. clinical development teams, from our diagnostic teams, from our foundation medicine teams, from our um, uh, other teams across, across the whole of Rush and the external environment. And we need to make sure that's at their fingertips and that it doesn't matter which country they're in. It doesn't matter if it is a rural area or if it's in an inner city that they can access mm -hmm. that data. And I know that seems diverse, and if you're a, a talent thinking about whether or not you want to work in the rush, you might uh, find some of that boring and some of that exciting. But as I said at the very beginning, each part of that is an important role into mm -hmm. actually making sure that a patient gets treated and actually improving overall patient outcomes for the whole for the whole of international. Yeah, I find this fabulously interesting. I just wrote a piece that'll probably be out around the time that this podcast uh, gets out comparing in some ways this last mile problem of clinical trials to the real world and how you know clinical trials are meant to represent intent to treat but often don't for pragmatic reasons and in the AI space you know your model is meant to model the data distribution that you want to apply it to but often doesn't because it's hard to get those data and so how did what role does your team play then in thinking about you know we know we know this about a medicine but now we have to take it into the world and we have to bridge some, you know, some leaps of faith here. Where do, what kinds of information and data can you bring to bear on, on that problem? Well, I think one part is that at Roche, we have a really strong personalized healthcare capability. I mean, incredibly mm -hmm. mature um, capability. And when it comes into, because you started the question with what does my team do? And mm -hmm. one thing that I'm always really clear on is these kind of efforts are a joint effort. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is medical, it mm -hmm. is informatics, it is the, the, the last smile to the customer, it's the, it's the customer facing teams. You really need everyone working together when you start to decide how are we going to collect 
use and divine insights from these data sets and then reapply them in ways that actually make a difference to patient care. Mm-hmm. So at Roche, we have something called uh, the Real World uh, Data Hub, where we all mm-hmm. work together. It's not um, restricted by functional boundaries. And I haven't seen a, a model like it before, but Roche went through an enterprise-wide agile transformation. Which if you'd asked me a year ago, what was that? I would have said it's a collection of buzzwords, but now I've seen it in action. <laughs> Seriously, now I've seen it in action. I'm so impressed. I'm only laughing because and my, wife, my wife was tasked with one of those at another Roche-sized company, right? So I, I know how that sausage is made. Right. Yeah. Really? Because I'll yeah. never go back now. Now I've seen how it can work to really say, let's flow the best talent together across the company to achieve mm-hmm. a really important outcome for patients. I'll never go back to something where we're sitting in our functional boxes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been tremendous to experience over the last six months at Roche. And so specifically, you know, a lot of it's about partnerships and it's about mm-hmm. trying to find partnerships where you're doing the right thing for patients but also mm-hmm. the, the various partners, be it um, academic medical centers, be it uh, local NGOs who are trying to maintain their own registries for their patients, mm-hmm. that we're really making sure that one, we're doing what's right for the patients overall. Two, that we're supporting everyone in that ecosystem. So we're not even just trying to think about it. Of, it's you and me, and what do we do with this data? But it's really... It's you and me and it's the entire ecosystem around us. And how do we not duplicate efforts? How do we make sure that whatever we do is in the best interest of the patients? But uh, yes, we, we do have a lot of partnerships that are really around how do we use the data, the real world data mm-hmm. out in the field to do the best for patients and to, again, have clinical trials that are developed in such a way that they will accurately reflect the treatment that patients receive. Well, that's excellent. Um, I want to hear more about your perspective towards patients. So you've you've mentioned a few times your work with RareX. Maybe we can start there, and and let's start by tell us what is RareX. You can you know give us the the elevator uh, description of that organization. But spoiler, it's very different than Roche. So I want to hear how how you kind of you personally, you Angelie, are learning from these different you know these different places where you where you spend your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Rafael, and um, I definitely. You know this, I'm, I'm a member of, of different organizations and also have uh, a leadership role in different organizations at Roche and at the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence where you and I both work together and at RareX and you learn so much from looking at how um, different organizations work together. When I look specifically at RareX, our goal is to serve patients with ultra rare diseases. So patients who perhaps are not naturally getting the support that they need to really uh, stimulate research into their conditions. And what we found um, is that a lot of these patients set up their own registries. I mean, a lot of it is parents Mm -hmm. who start to just develop their own registries. Maybe they're developing them on Excel. They're trying to connect to other parents who found out that their children have the same disease. They're then trying to themselves track data and then trying to themselves get it in front of researchers. I mean, you can even maybe tell by the change in, in the tone of my voice, it's, it's very hard to see. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm a parent myself and, and it's particularly hard to see. So what we, we do is our model is in collaboration um, with the Broad Institute and, and using the Terra Bio platform that, that they support and provide is we 
um, go out. And if the, the, the group or the patients or the parents have already started to collect data, then of course we integrate and store the data that they've been maintaining at home or on their PCs. Mm -hmm. Or if they are big enough to have an NGO, then we go and work with the NGO to really start to collect and structure that data. We then um, make sure that we start to connect to different research groups around the whole globe who are interested in looking at these rare disorders or maybe adjacent disorders, which have a similar, for instance, maybe you're a, a basic researcher or a, or a clinician and you're looking at something that hits a similar molecular pathway. So mm -hmm. maybe we can get you interested in having a look at this rare disease and thinking about how it could also be addressed. Maybe because you're researching a molecule that has a mode of action that might be close to this disease area. Mm -hmm. And then comes into the business model. Well, how on earth do you finance that kind of work? I mean, I've worked in, in you know, in, in oncology and neurodegeneration. I know how to finance that kind of progress mm -hmm. for patients. But in the ultra rare space, what we have done is we've gone out to, to some big pharma partners and we're running programs for them where we are collecting data in a less rare area. For instance, everything in neurodegeneration over a specified uh, patient population, everything in renal over a specified mm -hmm. patient population. And then they've allowed us to say, okay, half of that financing is now grant money, which you can use to support the ultra rare patients on the same platform. So one, it allows us to mature the platform, the data standards, for instance, mm -hmm. that work was a huge part of what we needed to invest in. Um, uh, and how do we develop our uh, interfaces for collecting patient data? Because we really tailor them to the individual patient groups and what sort mm -hmm. of user experience they need. And then, uh, and then with the grant money, we're really able to provide all those same resources to these ultra rare groups. I want to talk a little bit about data rights and maybe getting ahead of myself. It, it seems to me that in rare disease, because there is in some ways a, I don't know, a sense of desperation or just a ground up do it yourself fitness because there's no market, right? For, for a cure for one person, people may be more willing to throw their own data at a problem and, and share it and let the world help. But do you have kind of an overarching philosophy about patient data rights and how data should be used responsibly? And is there some nuance? Is it different for rare disease versus, you know, a disease with you know, 50,000, 100,000 patients annually per country or something? So I think um, the way patients feel can be different depending on the acuteness mm -hmm. of their symptoms, uh, whether it's a parent and a child. So the way that somebody might feel about how willing they are to share the data might change depending on how acute their symptoms are uh, and mm -hmm. what their life expectancy is. And I think that's understandable. Um, when it comes into what is our responsibility as global citizens to every individual, mm -hmm. there I would say that we, I, I, at least so far, and I'm willing to be challenged, I don't see any need to treat anyone differently based on, mm -hmm. on what indication they have. <laughs> as I say it out loud, I don't, I don't think we should treat people's data privacy rights differently, depending on what indication we have. I feel very confident in that. Mm -hmm. um, I think here, um, so you talked about nuances and, and Raphael, of course, we work together and, and have interactions in the data standards committee at the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare. Uh, I think that we have an obligation to make sure that patients can one, understand 
the consequences of how their data may be used, either mm -hmm. to improve healthcare or misused so that they also can understand what sort of predictions you might make around with bias interpretations. Mm -hmm. And I know that's hard. I know that we're very specialized and we've worked in this field for a long right. time. But, you know, a big part of the work we do at the Alliance is also around our educational webinars. And I think mm -hmm. that kind of work is really important. And the other piece is I think that we really have to support hospital groups, governmental organizations, in being able to reduce their healthcare costs by partnering with third parties, by making more use of this data. And mm -hmm. I understand why they want to do that. I understand why big, even sometimes government-owned hospital organizations would want to partner with third parties and reduce their healthcare costs. And I think mm -hmm. that can be very effective, but also to make it easy for them to put in regulations, controls, and checks that will not block innovation, but will really allow them to protect patients' data, right. that will really allow them to prevent the misuse of data. And, and here, when you, you also ask, what's my, my personal view? And why do, I, why do we both use the term nuance? I mean, I, I live here in Germany, where I've been on and off for the last 17 years, also lived in, in East Germany, and, uh, and so I'm very aware of the history of the Stasi here. So if mm -hmm. you talk about data misuse, that's not a far away distant memory for, for mm -hmm. people who've lived in, in East Germany. People remember what the Communist Secret Service did because the 80s is not that long ago. Right. And, um, and so I do think about this uh, when it comes to writing regulations and guidelines. The question I always ask myself is, okay, I'm not writing the guidelines which are best for now. I'm writing the guidelines that will make sense if the CEO of that company or the, the leader of that country changed, that these mm -hmm. guidelines would still be robust enough to withstand right. that as best as you can do. And because I, I, I you know, why, why would I choose to work in a pharma company? Because I really believe that commercial entities can drive forward the innovation that makes a difference to patients' lives. So I also agree that you have to design those regulations in a way that allow innovation to continue. And, and I think that working together with commercial third parties can be a big driver for the innovation that will reduce healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. It has to just be done um, with very balanced considerations and protections and guardrails against misuse of data. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you mentioned the, the sort of geographic component to this. And I, I'd like to just follow up, given your current role and, you know, the sort of four corners of the world that you mentioned you cover, do you find patient education or even provider education around data to be one of the hurdles that you have to clear more in some parts of the world than others? Or does that pale compared to just logistical constraints and, and things like that? I think right now, um, a good understanding of how to ensure that data sets can remain private at the same time as being able to access those data sets to derive insights. I think my experiences, and this is the same in, in altographies where so far I've been asked to work or consult on this topic, is that it's often seen as a, either the data is accessible or the data mm -hmm. is private. 
And you and I know, Raphael, that that's not at all true. I mean, there are so many different technical solutions uh, around data uh, privacy preserving software now. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that also we see emerging innovations, you know, um, uh, around synthetic data sets or federated learning, mm-hmm. which are also having very promising results. And I would strongly encourage people to look at and think about and invest in how we can, one, still derive insights from the data, but not give up on the security of the data. And I think here, I don't expect to to go out and uh, and be able to make that technical component obvious to everyone. But mm-hmm. I think we have to make do a better job at communicating the fact it's not an either or. Either you gain insights and innovation or you protect and, uh, and block access to your data. I think we need to do a much better job in every country at explaining it's not an either or. Yeah, I mean, these are the kinds of issues, you know, I think you and I share a passion for. Um, I'd like to, we talked a bit about RareX. I'd like to talk about the, the other organization we've referenced over and over, uh, the, the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. And to our listeners, if you go back to, gosh, I think it was episode six in season one, um, you'll hear an episode about the standing up of that organization. But these are the kinds of issues we're working on, right? There's education, there's data standards. Um, we're really interested in thinking about tackling bias. You know, you probably will never have a bias-free data set, but it's certainly possible to at least acknowledge that, right? So... <laughs> What drew you to the mission of the Alliance? And maybe you can kind of give your historical perspective on the founding of the organization and the progress so far. Sure, absolutely. I'm, I'm delighted to. And um, and also when I think about our mandate, because I, I know that you and I have some similarities in our background, but, you know, when I began uh, my career with um, genetic editing, uh, iPS cell differentiation, single chain antibodies. I mean, there as well, I think we had to do a lot of education. Mm-hmm. Every technology needs a lot of education to be um, to really have an impact on the market. I think now mm-hmm. we, we know that as well with the mRNA vaccines. So I see mm-hmm. a lot of parallels. My history with the AAIH, I um, was at Bayer and we were going through our digital transformation or we were just beginning it in, in 2018 as a program for the entire organization. And at that time, um, the CIO, um, Abel uh, Akundia Pineda, invited me to lead the artificial intelligence work stream within that. Mm-hmm. And I had had uh, a coffee with Nahid, um, uh, who's the CEO of Cyclica and also one of our founding members, uh, and just met him for the very first time, I think, uh, uh, three months beforehand, just coincidentally. Mm-hmm. And so I started to think about, okay, I'm going to <laughs> now start to shape up what artificial intelligence at Bayer Pharma looks like. I can't possibly um, start to think about that on my own. That's also not the way I tackle any problem. You know, mm-hmm. being a researcher for so long, the first thing I do is think about where is the thought leadership? Um, And so immediately I started to look online. There was a post which had Nahid's name attached to it where he put out the first concept for what the Alliance could look like. I just sent an email and said, could I please get on board? And, uh, and, you know, and it it wasn't yet, uh, um, I think it was three months before that we did the kickoff at JP Morgan. And Mm -hmm. so then three months later, I was on stage at JP Morgan kicking off life comes at you fast as they say you know it does in our field it does in our field absolutely 
Um, but then the progression from my perspective, I mean, I really um, think we've gone through what, what you could see as the normal stages of a startup. So mm-hmm. we had um, certainly a storming phase where everything, as you know, was done by the executive and, mm-hmm. and the, the board members where we, we did a lot of all the work and we, um, uh, and I think to some extent uh, we still live and thrive of the fact that our board and, and executive committee is so committed. Um, but we've really scaled out we have worked out exactly what is our strategic impact on policies, exactly what is the impact we intend to have on data standards. We've got working groups made up of extremely bright and intelligent thought leaders from the 50 different companies that make up our membership and growing. You know, in this last month, we've had both Roche and Google come on board mm-hmm. as members, um, but we still have a very strong solid core of startups where we know a lot Mm -hmm. of the innovation is really being driven right now in our space and also our academic partners. So I think we've grown, we've kept a real focus on our identity, which is strong Mm -hmm. technical thought leadership. And now the evolution I see is that we're starting to discuss what new business models can come out of this. And I think that's really been an evolution for me, at least Mm -hmm. in the last year, is that because the startup companies are now mid-size and and doing extremely well, I don't think we can even use the term startup anymore. But I think um, it's really, what are the business models that are gonna transform this space? And I Mm -hmm. see those discussions for me are taking place within our alliance. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience from a different vantage, but the thing that's so exciting to me is, is just what you said. We have organizations like your own, like Rush, but also smaller startups, brand new startups, and then companies that have made the transition. I'm thinking of Recursion Pharma, which went public recently. But when, you know, I think they were a Series A company when in 2008, or maybe Series B, right? And so it's having this meeting of the minds where you can learn the best practices from big organizations, but also see the innovation coming out of the, the more nimble, uh, smaller organizations that, that's been so rewarding to me. So I have kind of one last question on the Alliance and then the sort of parting thought is in the same vein. I, I'm interested from your perspective, the cup half full perspective, not so much what's the biggest challenge, but what's the biggest potential, the biggest opportunity for AI specifically, but, but kind of data-driven improvements in healthcare more generally. What, what do you think that that real potential is that, that we can attain? Yeah, so I get asked this question a lot and you'll have to track all my interviews to see if the answer changes because the answer right now is different to the one I would have given um, in the past. And that's because I'm seeing a lot of the hospital networks around the globe that um, Pharma International support don't mm-hmm. want to go back to the same way of working they had before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so right now I see the huge opportunity is in providing meaningful triage and at-home care mm-hmm. so that we can create maybe more modern, but also more impactful um, treatment experiences for patients around the world. But that will look different. That might not need them to go into a doctor in the same way they would have done before. That might be faster, have a quicker turnaround, 
maybe be continuous treatment with their therapeutics um, while they're at home or while they're on the move. And mm -hmm. I see that there's a tremendous amount of progress being made in both virtual wards and early triage. And I think that that's a very exciting space right now. Thank you. That's a, a great answer. And, and it very well may be different from your other ones, but, but I think if anything good comes of COVID, let's hope that it's, we've learned more efficient ways of doing work and doing medicine. Angeli, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. This is a, a real pleasure and a privilege. I look forward to our next board meeting just uh, so we can keep doing more of this. Absolutely. I look forward to it too. Thank you very much. This has been episode 24 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.